Hello and welcome. My name is Duncan and this is Unorthodoxy. And what you are about to listen to, if you stick around, is the second part in a two-part talk series that I gave recently on the subject of the Enneagram. In the previous episode, I, I played a recording of, of a talk that gave an overview of the Enneagram. And in this episode, I'm playing the follow-up, which is a talk on basically sort of some of the groundwork on how to think about growing uh, with particular attention to the Enneagram. I hope you find the talk helpful. Here you go. I'm going to start in, so I'm, obviously I'm talking about the Enneagram and personal growth, but I'm, I'm very aware that more than a few of you weren't here last week, and that's okay. So um, I've got this handout, which I, I hope all of you have. Um, who hasn't got one? Are we okay? Uh, too busy introducing me to get one. Uh, so the handout is basically last week's, last week's talk in a nutshell. A kind of overview of what the Enneagram is. Quick question, who doesn't yet know their type? Okay. That's part of the process, by the way. Um, the idea of, of looking um, at the Enneagram is that you actually go through a process of discerning who you are. Uh, we, we are remarkably out of touch with ourselves. We're actually not transparent to ourselves. Which is a really weird idea, but it's, it's why the humanities exists. We wouldn't have psychology and sociology and anthropology and various other fields, philosophy, if we were totally transparent to ourselves. So the greatest mystery is that you, you see from yourself, but you're not always sure how to see yourself. And so the Enneagram is a tool uh, that, that helps you to, to understand who you are, what, what motivates you. I think some of you were probably more than surprised last week to dis, dis, um, discover that there's a massive vice at the baseline of your whole personality. Um, so you think, oh, I'm, I'm doing so well. And then you discover, wait, hang on a minute. I'm trying to run from something, and that's actually driving me. Um, so what I want to talk about is, is, in a way, what we do to form personality, and then how that formation of personality leads to a kind of disintegration, a kind of embracing of a false self. And then what we need to do to kind of get back to our true selves, or get to our true selves, depending on your perspective, which is something that I'm very aware of uh, in looking at the Enneagram. But I want to start in an unusual place. I want to start with uh, Genesis 1. It's unusual because it's one of the, it's the, it's a creation poem. There were a number of creation poems that were written around the same time. Um, and, and this is just one of them, and it, it, there, there's a kind of theme that comes through most creation poems, and uh, I'll explain what that means. So, you all know, it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What in the world? Firstly, six-day creationists, are you paying attention? The earth was formless and void right at the beginning. It's just a joke. Like there's, the earth is already there. So what we're, whatever kind of creation we're dealing with, we're not dealing with creation out of nothing. That's a theological construct that happened later. But there are two things that are happening. There's formless and void. Um, the, the Hebrew words tohu and vohu, which can be tran translated wild and waste. So there's a kind of chaos there. There are waters, 
chaotic waters. Water in the Bible is often a, and in fact in ancient times, is often a symbol of chaos. So whenever you encounter the theme of this idea of water, think of returning to a pre-ordered state, a chaotic pre-ordered state. You'll understand what this is all brewing towards, hopefully, as we move along. And so um, there is chaos, this water, this wild and waste, this earth that is formless and void. And then there is the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And now what that kind of gets to is that all creation requires the interplay of order and chaos. That's all creation. Any form of creativity is, is some form of ordering principle faced up against some kind of chaotic mess and trying to make sense of that. Um, now, let's look at how this relates to the formation of self. We are thrown into the world. This is Heidegger's term, and I think it's so, it's so appropriate and beautiful. We are thrown into it. it we're hurled into it. You arrive on the planet, and there's this story, this human story that's been going for, depending on your source, 200 million years or so. And, and it's been going on long before you got here, and it will carry on long after you, well, hopefully, long after you, you're gone. And you have to, right from the start, make sense of this. And it's chaos. It's raw, unfiltered data. It's just information that you haven't processed yet. And yet, you need, you require some kind of ordering principle or various ordering principles to make sense of this chaos. Um, what, what I notice about humanity is very interesting. We have a kind of, <coughs> I think this is, excuse me, got the plague since we last spoke. Um, Viktor Frankl talks about um, the will to meaning as a kind of contrast to Nietzsche's will to power. There's this thing in us that just craves meaning. We want things to make sense. We want life to make sense. We want our experiences to make sense. We want the world to make sense. We can't get away from this will to meaning. And so we will latch onto anything, any ordering principle that can make sense of the chaos because that is how we can come into contact with ourselves at least, or in, at least um, partially we might be able to come into contact with ourselves. So we have to find tools that can help us to make sense of, of everything. The tools that we select are a number of things, uh, just a few examples. Stories are tools for making sense of things. I'll come back to quite a few stories as we move along. Action. Action is a fantastic uh, way to, to make sense of reality. When you act in the world, you feel like life is stable. One of the, the chief sources of depression is unemployment. Not having something to do, not having some task to complete, actually creates a sense, depression, a sense of disorder, a sense of chaos in the self. So, I mean, that's a very simplistic aspect of a very complex problem. I don't want to reduce anything here. I'm, I'm a five on the Enneagram, and that, like, reduction is a problem everywhere. So, um... So there is a need to make sense through stories, actions, and then various other kinds of articulations. And we latch onto these tools to make meaning. Um, 
And what I, I think helps to, uh, the way I frame this, and I mean, there are probably a million ways to understand how we are using these tools, but the tools we select to make sense of things are rooted in an act of two things, identification and participation. So participation is what you cannot help. You participate in coffee drinking without being aware that this is an actual cultural symbol and it's got all sorts of capitalist overtones and, and various um, other kinds of overtones of enjoyment and pleasure and that kind of thing. So And, you know, staying awake, various other things. So you participate in the world. And participation is the ground of our, our being in some sense because we, we participate in these ordering principles whether we know it or not. We're not aware of it. But it has all sorts of deeper significance, and it makes sense in that one articulated action. The second thing, the tool that we, well, way that we select tools to make sense of reality is identification. Identification is just identifying with it. This is me doing this thing. I am actually acting in this way in the world. This is what I am saying. So we identify with certain things. And you will know from the movies that you enjoy watching that there are certain things you prefer to identify with. And that gives you a very good clue into at least some sense of your, 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 the nature of yourself, that you will identify with certain things that other people will not identify with. There's a kind of, there's room to play. Um, this identification, I'm going to take a sip of coffee, since I've been talking about it, I might as well just <laughs> participate. So, as we start to understand the world through, through these tools of articulation, storytelling, etc., we begin to individuate. Jung calls this individuation. Identity formation occurs according to perceptions around what helps us to cope with chaos and what doesn't. It's very important here. Perceptions that... We, we perceive that certain things help us to cope with the chaos, and we perceive that certain things move us towards order. Although, I would say that chaos and order are always part of the creative process, so maybe it's better to say that anything that moves us towards creation, which is where the tension between chaos and order is maintained in a healthy way, that's, that's what we tend to want to gravitate towards, according to the perception we have of what will actually help us to achieve this. And then the second thing is, is destruction, where the, the tension between chaos and order is, is not maintained. So then we might move towards destruction. And obviously we would want to, you would think, avoid destruction. But there's always a proviso to everything. <laughs> the, the problem is that, that we perceive that certain things will draw us towards creation or draw us towards destruction, but the perception itself might not be accurate. Because we're always seeing things from a very limited perspective. We cannot get away from that. So what it happens is individuation develops through a process of compensating for, um, for destruction in a way. So this thing that moves us towards destruction, this tension between order and chaos. We compensate for that by moving towards some subjective perception of what will provide creation, creativity. Okay. So I'm going to, um, in a sense, you've got destruction, so-called destruction is rejected, so-called creation is accepted. And this is in the formation of the self. We choose 
Okay, and, and I say this choose as if this is always conscious. It's not. We choose things and we reject and we choose to not choose certain other things, basically. So um, Robert Johnson in his book, Owning Your Shadow, this is going to, we're going to move into some Jungian territory in a big way now. Um, he says, somewhere early on our way, we eat of the wonderful fruits of the tree of knowledge. Things separate into good and evil. And we begin the shadow-making process. We divide our lives. So we divide things in the, in the world. And this is a very interesting thing. We, we assume we are rejecting things out there in the world. Evil things. I'm, the word evil needs to be in quotes. Um, it's not necessarily evil. It's what we perceive to be evil. And things that we perceive to be good because of our particular cultural context, because of our particular individual makeup, we take, so this is nature and nurture in a sort of chaotic dance. We perceive that these things are, are out there. But what's really happening, as, as Johnson explains, is we're dividing ourselves. So this is, again, you could go into a lot of psychoanalytic detail. I won't do that. But the gist of it is that the things we accept move into our conscious thought patterns um, things we consciously accept, and then the things that we reject, we actually shove down into our unconscious. We think that perception is, is so there's, there's the division that we perceive between the, the inner self and the outer world is a false, is a false division. It's not at all true. Um, your experience of things is incredibly, um, incredibly connected to, so, I've, I've used this example here, but let me hold this book. Where does the, the line between this book out here in the world and the, the idea of the book that you carry in your head, where is that line um, drawn? Can you tell me where it is? You can't. Because in some sense, it's not there. You're perceiving everything in your head, but you see this in reality and, you're, and you... Some, somewhere along in your, uh, the line in your consciousness, you perceive that this is outside of you. But the perception of it being outside of you is happening within you, which should blow your mind a little bit. Um, so, <coughs> oh, that, that, I should have gone back there. So, there is some sense in which uh, the story of, of Eve and Adam eating the, uh, the fruit of the tree of knowledge is really a story about the creation of the self. Actually, really, there are reasons not to like this depiction uh, by Michelangelo. For one thing, his, his conception of the female body is a little misguided. That is a man with breasts. Um, but, but what I do like about it is that on the one side, you you, it, it reads as a story, but also you can see it, we, also, we see it simultaneously. Adam and Eve are in the garden eating of the fruit, and they are expelled from the garden. Uh, they've, you know, like they can't go back to Eden. They have eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Now they, they have a divided self. That's just how it works. So, basic idea, what is chaotic, or at least destructive, is that which is perceived to be out there is repressed. It becomes unconscious. And that which is creative becomes accepted, and now this is who we are. What we do in the process here is we create 
um, an in idealized self-image and mistakenly believe that this exaggerated expression of one aspect of our self is our whole self. We use I am statements, right? Like, I am this. I am not that. I am not someone who watches violent movies. So, I mean, even simple, simple I am statements can be profoundly indicative of a disintegrated self. This is why most mystics actually talk about not identifying with the I. You'll say, instead of saying I am depressed, you'll say depression is in me. Like, I'm, I'm not depressed. That, I'm not my depression. That's something else. Um, so, Jung has this uh, really helpful thing to say um, here. He says, the nature of consciousness, this is from his, his really amazing book, Psychological Type. So, I'm actually using Jung's theory of personality um, to kind of back up a different theory of personality. Um, but he says this, the nature of consciousness is aptly characterized by this simile. Only a limited number of contents can be held in the conscious field at the same time. We're limited. We, need, we can only hold a certain number of things at the same time. <coughs> and of these limited things that we hold in consciousness, only a few can attain the highest grade of consciousness. The activity of consciousness then is selective. We're making a choice of a kind. The selection demands a direction. But the direction requires the exclusion of everything irrelevant. This is bound to make the conscious orientation one-sided. So we become imbalanced, natu quite naturally. And, and, and out of necessity, this is how the self forms. We need to become imbalanced first. The contents that are excluded... <coughs> Sorry, Jung continues. The contents that are excluded and inhibited by the chosen direction sink into the unconscious, where they form an unconscious counterweight to the conscious orientation. So this is what balances us. This is maybe alarming. It's a little bit like discovering that you have a vice. Well, the thing that balances you is all that dark stuff that you repress into your unconscious. Not, not everything in your world is repression. Freud maybe exaggerated that a bit. But yes, a lot of ourselves is repressed. A lot of it is like, no, there are certain things I cannot accept in myself. So I have to reject them in some form. So an example from the Enneagram, if, if you look at this, um, would be the way that different types would sort of look at their look at the world and themselves. Ones would say, I am right and good. They wouldn't say, I'm wrong and bad. They'd say, I'm not wrong. I'm not bad. I'm not negative. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you got that one. Twos would say, I'm helpful and considerate. I am not prideful and self-serving. It's a very untoish. Don't. Oh, three say I'm efficient and successful, not I am a failure and run of the mill and average. You know that kind of um, thing. A uh, 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 four would say I'm special and non-conformist, not ordinary. I am honest. I'm the four would say I'm true to myself. I'm not hypocritical. <laughs> well, I would say that hypocrisy is our pathology. Everybody is a hypocrite right here. We have beliefs so that we don't have to believe them, but that's another thing. Um, 
Fives would say, I am wise and perceptive, not I am foolish and ignorant. Sixes say, I am obedient and loyal, not I am deviant and uncertain. Sevens would say, I'm okay, not I'm not okay. Um, Eights would say, I'm powerful, I can do. We can win at all costs. Sounds like someone famous at the moment. Not I'm weak and vulnerable, and I'm a loser too. (laughs) Nines say, I'm settled. There's no conflict in me. Conflict, everybody else is in conflict. I'm not in conflict. So you, and so, by the way, you can you can unpack this in tremendous depth, and like, and I would really encourage you to do this. And this part of what I'll be suggesting suggest. Well, I'll come back to this idea, but make a list of the I am statements, the things that you identify with, and the I am not statements. This is me. This is not me. Make that list and start because it's one of the most helpful ways to identify your unconscious, the things that you have repressed, the things that are, despite yourself, still part of you. Okay. There's an interesting theme that, uh, actually, let me, yeah, let, let me start with this. There's an interesting theme that can be noticed in a number of mytho- mythological and biblical stories. Um, actually, this is, sorry, before I get there. This is a, Freud used an iceberg to dis, discuss, discuss what, what is conscious and what is unconscious. Um, and I think it's a really helpful thing. The conscious thing is the thing that we think is everything is fine. But the unconscious, the thing that can sink the ship, right, is this iceberg. That there's so much more going on. Uh, the way he divided it was the conscious is sort of the, this is the, the ego, and there's a bit of the superego there, and then the unconscious is the id and the superego. So the superego kind of straddles both conscious and unconscious. Superego is that, that um, in a way, it's that thing that tells you you must do this or that thing. That, that, that thing that, the ought that you feel, I must work hard. Superego, um, very helpful, but also, you know, occasionally needs to be murdered. Okay, so what happens? There are a number of stories that are very interesting that... Deal with this theme of the monstrous. Something monstrous is lurking beneath the, beneath the waves, the chaotic waters. And that monstrous thing is going to come up and eat you. Okay, so this is where Jaws came from. By the way, it's, a, it's an amazing thing because there are so many. There's Sharknado, which I think kind of wrecks the whole theme because the shark's actually like, they get caught up in a tornado. I kid you not. <laughs> Someone, this is... What? Like, um, I don't know if it's, it's worth, uh, worth watching that. But anyway, like, the typical, the, typical, the typical shark movie, right? The typical shark movie is the shark is beneath the waves, and you're sitting in a cinema freaking out in Pretoria, which is nowhere near the ocean. I mean, like, what in the, why, why are we even, like, seriously, it's a shark. Okay, this person was, was being dumb. Why are they swimming there? Stupid. Um, which is a very fivish thing to say. Um, <laughs> but, but, it, the reason we get freaked out is because it has a kind of deep archetypal resonance with us. We feel like, wait, there's something true about this, even if it's total hogwash. There's something true about this monstrous thing lurking beneath the waves. It's going to jump up and eat us. Um, 
And in mythology and in the Bible, I'll get to Jonah in a, in a bit, um, the monster lurks beneath the waves of the ocean. I mean, that's very interesting. We perceive that the darkness, that the thing that's going to consume us, comes out of too much chaos. So what's interesting about the Jonah story? Now, it's, it's Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the fish. I mean, quite frankly, let's not get, get our, our knickers in a knot about which term is better. But Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. Now, it's an, a really powerful myth because Jonah is pulled beneath the waves by this monstrous thing. And then what happens? The monster takes him to where he should have been going in the first place. So he gets taken to Nineveh. The monstrous thing is on his side. I mean, it would have been a really interesting thing, you know, jaws like attacking people and then later on the shark says, you know what, <laughs> let's have some tea together. There's, like, because there is something about the monster needs to be faced because when we face the monster, maybe it will take us to where we need to go. The thing that is terrible, the thing that you fear, the thing that you have repressed, the, the, that, that terrible presence, may be the thing that will save you. So, um, back to Genesis. Um, this is uh, from some Jewish mythology. There are amazing commentaries in the Talmud and, uh, that talk about, like, that basically take a few verses in the Bible and then just explode them into all sorts of wild imaginings. Incredible. Um, the Jewish hermeneutic thing, which I think Christians can learn from, is a minimum of revelation and a maximum of interpretation. <laughs> Protestants are going to like all have heart failure because of this. But anyway, so this is a Jewish myth. When the world was first created, God filled the wor uh, world with a sacred light known as the primordial light. This was the light that came into being when God said, let there be light. So the previous thing I read actually stopped just before this. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, the first thing they lost was the precious light. But God preserved one small part of the precious light inside a glowing stone, and this was delivered to Adam by the angel Raziel after they had been expelled from Eden as a token of the world they had left behind. Something of Eden, something of even bigger than Eden, of creation itself, goes with Adam and Eve. This jewel was known as the Tzohar, T-Z-O-H-O-A-R. It glowed sometimes brightly and sometimes dimly. The interpretation is very simple. So firstly, this, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They're in darkness. They're, they're completely away from paradise. And yet... With them, they have some, some remaining kind of residue of the primordial light. That's the first thing. The other thing is that it glows sometimes brightly, sometimes dimly, meaning sometimes they notice that they had the primordial light with them, sometimes they forgot. It sounds like a familiar story, right? So, and then as the mythology develops, this Sohar stone was passed from generation to generation, lost at one point, found by Abraham, etc., etc., it eventually lands in Joseph's hands. So Joseph was wearing this stone when his brothers threw him into this dark pit, which was filled with, according to the mythology, snakes and scorpions. Very, very significant uh, mythological signifiers for the unconscious. 
and the Tohar began to, began to glow while he was in the pit. So his brothers didn't realize this, the stone had any value, so they chucked him in the pit. Then the stone started to glow. There is light in the darkness. Reminds you a little bit of John, like the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Interesting. Um, what was Jonah's light? Because he was, he was also in the, he was in the belly of this fish for three days, right? What was his light? Well, it was prayer, meditation. So he, th there's a, a theme in the Bible which is quite different from the typical view of mon the monstrous. Although, I'll get to some images that may, may help to sort of uh, overturn this conclusion, but um, there is something amazingly healthy in a way, descending into the depths, you know, going into the underworld, Dante going through, you know, hell. Something about that that we need to do because there we may discover the primordial light. There's something amazing about that. Many, many myths also deal with fighting monsters. Um, this is an interesting one. So this is uh, Marduk, and that's Tiamat. Marduk is uh, one of the great gods of, of um, in the sort of in Mesopotamia. Tiamat, the dragon of Chaos, huh, interesting. Related to the word, by the way, of tohu, in the tohu and vohu of Genesis, tiamat. They're related. They sound a little bit different, but trust me. If you look <laughs> etymologically, they do actually link. So, Marduk kills tiamat, splits her into two. It's a bit gory, you know. Mytholo ancient mythology is not really worried about, like, who are we going to offend? Bible put together by a committee, not going, who are we going to offend? <laughs> uh, so, like, this, the dragon is chaos. Marduk, now it's interesting, in the, in the uh, myth he's described as having uh, four eyes. It looked weird. It was a weird looking dude. Uh, four eyes, uh, four ears, had like when he spoke, fire came out of his mouth. So, like, uh, pow a powerful perceiver of all things. He took in everything and he could communicate in a powerful way. And he, he slays the dragon of chaos and creates. Um, but the chaos, the dragon of chaos remains there, right? So like split into two, but the body is what forms heaven and earth. Uh, a myth that we're all familiar with, uh, George, St. George and the dragon. Dragons have a very odd tendency to um, keep damsels. What is that about? What kind of thing is the dragon... St. George is fighting. So now, think of this as a dream, and then it'll make much more sense. This is all happening in one consciousness. Every story is a dream. Every film you watch is a dream. The author has to dream up the narrative, right? So if you start looking at it as a dream, it makes much more sense. George has to fight the dragon of chaos. Who is keeping damsel in distress? What does damsel in distress re represent? The soul. If you want to reclaim the soul, you have to go through the dragon of chaos. And he's doing it quite literally. Uh, other dragons of chaos. Jurassic Park is a story about broken families and facing the difficulty of divorce. <laughs> That's true. When you look at the Jurassic Park narratives, all, all of them, all four of them that, that, that currently exist, all deal with Two kids, okay, so the kids are there. There's family dysfunction, 
and they have to face this family dysfunction. By the, by the end of the story, they have reconciled themselves to the monstrosity that they have gone through. The dinosaurs are not real. You knew this, but I'm sorry to like, like wreck your like, whole fantasy, but the, di the dinosaurs are not real. They, they have to face the dinosaur in order to discover the, the primordial light within the dark story. Right? And so what's also interesting, in the first Jurassic Park film, the, the thing that is most terrifying throughout the film is the T-Rex, absolutely without doubt, like the biggest of the monsters. But what happens right at the end of the story? Sorry, spoilers. The film came out in 1993. I feel like if you haven't seen it by now, <laughs> I could give away a few spoilers. The T-Rex is actually not the thing that is chasing the kids and, and the adults in, in the remaining adults, because the others, I'm sorry, they didn't make it. But the, <laughs> like, so the thing that is actually, there's lots of spoilers. The, the really terrifying thing is the velociraptors, they're chasing everyone. Who saves them? The T-Rex. The T-Rex, the, the true monstrosity is the thing that actually saved them. So now our perception, our usual perception is, oh, you know, like if I want to grow, I want to embrace my best self. Because I think this is like the, the, you know, become more virtuous. Fine, do whatever. But like that's not going to work if you haven't dealt with the things that you're hiding in a way. Um, so th this is what's interesting. Okay. Um, I wonder if I put that here. Look at notes. Find, find where I wrote it. Um, what we repress, right, is, is scary. So Jung has this really interesting thing. He says, whatever is rejected from the self will show up in the world as an, an event. Whenever you are off, like feeling a little like when you're, something's happening that's not going well, and, or you just, whatever, you're struggling with procrastination. When something in your world is not going right, that is your unconscious, the thing that you're repressing, showing up in the world as an event. If, if you read news stories as that, things start to look a little different. For instance, uh, this is a contentious one, but I don't care. 9-11 uh, happened, and America's first response was, it's the other that is to blame. The other is the problem, right? But what is Al-Qaeda or ISIS? It's the unconscious of the West. It's the exact double, in fact. You can even see what they, they envy, what the conscious has, wealth, success, fame, celebrity, and they want to take it away from the West because they don't have it. The, the unconscious and the conscious are not integrated. When you start look at, looking at news stories, I mean, like, everyone is surprised by, by Zuma's corruption and, like, how it's sustained. Well, it can only be sustained by a massive unconscious in South Africa that has not been dealt with. And so it shows up in the world as an event. Um, so that's, that's the one thing that Jung says that I think is so, it's just incredibly uh, powerful and insightful. And there's obviously then a need to, to like, figure out how do, we, how do we get to deal with, with that. Um, the, uh, the other thing Jung says is, until you make the conscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. 
or God. There's something else that, that maybe, so you go like this terrible thing happened. I mean, the typical re- response of people is, God, this is God's will and everything happens for a reason. Like, well, that I just think is too simple an explanation for some of the things that happen. The other thing that Jung says about this is that there is no coming to consciousness without pain. So what I'm talking about here is terribly difficult. I'm talking about facing like monsters. It's not, it's not an easy thing. So, so the, the idea that we can grow without facing the monsters, it doesn't make sense. Every bit of darkness that you have in yourself is there because you need to face it. Uh, I would even say befriend it. So um, the way... What we need to do is we need to reconcile ourselves with our own monstrosity. We need to, in in a very powerful way, befriend the monsters that we have repressed. So this is is us going, I see you, T-Rex. I see that you want to eat me. But I'm going to let you be what you are, and maybe through this process I can be transformed. The thing that Jonah gets wrong is he, he gets spat up onto Nineveh. I mean, like you do. Every Saturday, oh, not again, spat onto, spat onto a beach. But anyway, the, this kind of, like, the thing he doesn't do, and you, and you find him just absolutely refusing to grow. He refuses to see, all, and everyone else sees the monster, and they go, we need to change. Everyone sees his monstrosity, but they don't see, and, and as a result, they see their own, and then they change. But Jonah himself remains untransformed. Deeply pro- problematic. So, the Enneagram. Here at last. Um, The Enneagram suggests that, firstly, the the number that you are, that I've said, you know, like you are a one, a two, three, a four, etc. That is is your, mostly, your conscious self. But there is something that you have repressed that is actually driving the conscious self. This is what the Enneagram refers to as the soul child, which is weird, but quite appropriate. I'll get to why. The soul child is an immature part of yourself. The thing that you repress naturally stays quite childish. It's very young because you have not allowed it to grow. And the thing that you need to do is look at that sad soul child, the thing that you've repressed, and, sa- and give it room to actually grow. So, I wanna, I'm going to explain that the inner triangle, this, this equilateral triangle, that's the first um, set of numbers. Let's start at nine. Uh, by the way, these arrows that, that are here on this diagram indicate the direction of integration. Okay, so uh, basic Enneagram theory is that there's always a direction of integration and then going against these arrows, that would be the direction of disintegration. And standard Enneagram theory, by the way, the Enneagram is stemmed from an oral tradition that's quite recent, so it's still actually under development. We're still learning about, you know, these things. But the typical theory is that we disintegrate towards um, one number and then integrate towards another. What I've discovered is that you can also disintegrate towards your, um, your soul child, the heart point is called. So you can actually disintegrate towards that. Your direction of integration may also reveal some sense of in- disintegration. 
But here's where it's helpful. It's much healthier to, to disintegrate towards your direction of integration because then you have a chance of actually seeing your soul child, this smaller part of yourself, your unconscious self, and actually then accepting it and allowing it to grow. Nines are the peacemakers. And they do not feel that their presence and being is, is you know, worth paying attention to. They, they hide in the background and they tend to just let everyone be happy. And nines are very sociable, but in a fairly sort of quiet way. But what nines have repressed is a very vain, deceitful little three soul child. This sometimes shows up in the fact that nines, um, nines actually lie uh, if they're very... Um, yeah, if they're not healthy, they actually lie a lot. They um, make up stories about their lives. Um, but nines have to... What, what is... Nine, nine sin is also sloth. Threes are the most ridiculous overachievers of the Enneagram. They want to, like, take over the world. Uh, are there any threes here? Because last <laughs> week there weren't any. Mm. Threes usually want to take over the world. That's why, like, they, like self-growth, it, it's so difficult for them to find time to, to grow. That's why I, me I mentioned Oprah as, like, a really healthy three, really unhealthy three. Uh, the cyclist who, who doped, what's his name, Lance Armstrong, you know, achieve at all costs, deceive people to achieve. That's, that's a very three-ish thing, okay? So, but nines have to embrace that because once they realize, I do, there's a part of me, it's hidden, but I do want to. I do want to shine. I want to impress people. That's that's a very three-ish thing. Like I want to impress people and shine and show off. They need to embrace that part of themselves because it's what will help them to act, to move to away from sloth towards actually acting. Threes I've discussed a bit now. Overachieving, but their overachieving and and activity in the world is dependent on their desire to be loved by everyone and accepted and admired. So what threes need to do is they need to move towards six. Point six, the loyalist, skeptic, but the point six is that kind of uh, place where you, you can accept belonging when at, at its healthiest, right, obviously. At its healthiest, point six can accept belonging in the world. I don't have to achieve to be able to belong. I can just belong. This will also help threes to chill out. Although, ironically, sixes work terribly hard, usually. And so, because they, they also, they, they're so fearful of their environment. They need to, they're so panicky and worried about, like, things going wrong and the future is terrible. And, and there's so much, there's so much conflict everywhere, which is the result of having a repressed soul, a nine soul child. So sixes have to integrate towards nine and just rest into their uh, belonging and also learn to just trust. So when sixes integrate, faith is becomes super like high priority. By the way, one, one indication of what you repress, uh, what you repress is often found in who your friends are and who your family, who, who your partner is. It can also be a very good indication because like sometimes you actually Repress it and then project it onto the world, as I discussed last week. So you can, you can actually tend to do that. Okay, so that's that's the inner. This is just a rough sketch. Obviously, we don't have time to go into too much detail, and I do want to have time for questions. Ones, obsession with being right tend towards an intolerance. They need to chill out at point seven. 
and relax and have fun and become tolerant and become a little bit more buoyant. That shows up as a repressed, in the repressed soul child as a really gluttonous soul child. Um, and so ones need to kind of embrace the gluttony and then sort of, you know, like ease up on that. Sevens, their pull is towards, they're, they're trying to avoid pain, but it's usually personal inner pain. And so they, they escape into the world. They need to integrate to point five, which is where they start to marry their intellectual gifts, because sevens have generally quite amazing intellectual gifts, and they need to integrate that into point five, which is inner, like inner transformation and, and uh, meditation and focus, uh, the, the ability to actually deepen focus. Fives live in their heads. I don't know what that's like, but you know, like... Um, so they live in their heads a lot, and then everything becomes hyper-theoretical, and the chances of acting in the world and making active change, slim. But the five soul child, I was horrified to discover, my five soul child is Donald Trump. <laughs> um, a very vindictive, vengeful little soul child. Very angry and aggressive. That's okay. He needs, he needs to have, so actually mine's a, mine for some reason is not, a, is not a, it's more like Angela Merkel is my soul child. Anyway. <laughs> so like fives need to integrate to eight and start to actually embrace action and justice and learn how to be angry. That's a really important thing. Eights are just normally angry and they tend to be overly energetic, overly involved in the world and they want to just, you know, make change the just thing. But they're doing it to protect their very, very weak and vulnerable two soul child. So they need to integrate to point two, where they can just learn that and accept their own vulnerability. And the eights that I know that, that have done this, and by the way, you'll find that even naturally, even if you haven't done the Enneagram, some of you have already kind of tended this way. And you've gone like, wow. Because if you're listening to your life, you will find these things anyway. Um, so, yeah, eights need to embrace vulnerability at point two. Twos struggle the most to see themselves as prideful and, you know, they're actually self-serving, but they actually need to embrace that at point four and start to create things. So a lot of twos that I know, they actually have tended already to the, to the creative fields to create, produce art and music and, and, you know, flower arranging, various things, like whatever creative expression, because twos have to discover that they have something to give the world that is, that is from themselves, that doesn't depend on other people being happy. Twos actually need to learn to, uh, you know the do unto others thing? Uh, the, Jesus tends to say, you know, deny yourself and then you will find your life. Don't tell that to a two. <laughs> it's, it's literally the exact wrong thing to say. Like Christianity is regarded by many, many Enneagram teachers as a two-ish religion. It's amazingly helpful for fives and basically, but for twos it can be quite toxic because they need to learn to not deny themselves, to actually meet their own needs, to, to have opinions, to, you know, discover that. Fours, um, melancholic, um, tending to, to dwell in the past. They need to learn from the one-ish focus on the future. Um, so, so fours need to kind of get out of uh, that self-absorption and that, that mourning that they tend to get into and move towards point one, where they can integrate. Um, also, um, fours hate the big other, the, the norm, 
everyone is being so inauthentic and hypocritical. Well, ones in some sense represent the, the, the norm because they're the ones who make the world, like, who create change in the world. Um, but they have to, even ones do that by accepting what is broken. They have to do that. So a healthy four will move towards point one where they can start to integrate what is not supposedly authentic, but they find glory in the ordinary. So that is, that is the, the kind of, that's a very rough summary. But what I want to, just one last um, sort of bit of advice, I suppose, for, for growth. It is helpful to return again to the me, not me list. And to, you can do this in your head, which I, I have done, but I should probably enact it because that's a, a problem not to um, act as a five. Um, it is good to make that list, draw up the contract that you made for yourself. The false contract. The, the contract that said, I am this and not that. And then tear it up. Or change the contract. And change the not this to, I am this and I am also this. Because once we can take the, the part that we accept of ourselves and the part that we reject and say, well, this is, they're both part of me there's a much greater chance to, to actually integrate. Um, and yeah, so that, that's, that's the kind of, um, I'd also suggest that obviously this is just a sketch, but that you do look deeper. I have put a few um, sources at the bottom of the, of the handout um, to, to indicate you know, some, some of the, the sources that I found very helpful. In terms of developing the, a concrete sense of the me, not me, and I, I think the most comprehensive Enneagram text that I've, I've read is the um, Nine Lenses of the Soul by Jerome Wagner. That is, that is my favorite book of the, uh, in, terms of, in terms of the psychology, in terms of the spirituality, which I think is vital. Sandra, Sandra Maitri's books are astonishing. Uh, really immense depth, difficult to get through because she, she, she's a very deep four, and she, so she looks at all of these things in very great complex, complex de detail. It's, I think, the best text for that.